Hey everybody, today is May 13th, 2016. Uh, welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Jonathan, I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Erica, Tiffany, Gabby, and Elliot. Hey guys. Hello. Hey. Hi. Hey. So today we have a, a, a pretty heavy topic. Um, we are going to be talking about pornography the rise of pornography, um, how it's hijacked the sexuality of our culture, uh, what are the psychological, physical, and emotional effects of pornography on the personal and societal levels, um, how does it impact intimacy and relationships with others, how is it tied to the objectification of women, pedophilia, and sex trafficking. Um, basically, it's just a really huge problem, and we thought that since we deal with not only physical health and wellness, but also mental health and psychological issues that this would be a good topic for us to cover today. It is a very heavy topic, um, and we did want to say just at the beginning of the show that if you have ever been a victim of abuse um, or if you have issues with this kind of content, we just wanted to give you kind of a heads up, uh, fair warning, uh, that uh, that this may be some some very shocking material, or it may affect you in a way that you might not expect. Um, so, of course, it's your choice to uh, continue listening or not. But we did want to give you a heads up about that. So, um, I guess let's uh, let's get started just to talk about um, this article from uh, from Utah that is kind of interesting, um, and I don't know if this is. You know, Utah is a largely Mormon state, but I don't know if this is something that needs to be kind of derided as, as being like a, a, a Mormon kind of uh, prudish thing, but I think it's actually quite interesting that they have deemed uh, pornography a health hazard. Uh, Utah Governor Gary R. Herbert signed two pieces of legislation, uh, one resolution and one bill this week in an attempt to combat what he has deemed a sexually toxic environment caused by pornography. Um I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Do you think that's like legislating morality, or do you think it's uh, a good idea? Well, I think it's important to note that it hasn't actually been banned or anything like that. Like, there's no there's no actual power behind the the legislation to actually um, enforce anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I think it's good because I think it's basically drawing attention to the fact that this is actually a problem. Because when you think about um, how porn is generally viewed by the public, it's gaining more and more acceptance all the time. People uh, just say, oh, no, it's good. You know, it's, it's a healthy part of a person's sexuality. And uh, to have this come out and, and kind of say, and yeah, it can be looked at as, as kind of prudish and just, you know, uh, maybe uh, overly Christian um, in its morality. But, uh, I, you know, there, there's plenty of, of non-religious um, individuals out there who are pointing to this as being a problem. So I think that it just kind of draws attention to that. Mm. I found it interesting that some of the skeptics about this legislation, um, one is a professor of neuroscience at the University of Leuven in Belgium. Mm. Um, he was saying that if porn was really that bad, and if you look at the number of people viewing it, there would be rapes at every street corner. So that's yeah. what, yeah, that was like kind of like a skeptic approach. But after reviewing all the material for this show, maybe that is the case, actually. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, part yeah. of that was that they said that pornography encourages viewers to view their sexual partners in a dehumanized way. 
and it increases the acceptance and enjoyment of sexual violence and harmful beliefs about women's sex and rape. So I think a lot of people will dismiss it as a bunch of uptight Mormons with their magic underwear poo-pooing sex. <laughs> but, I mean, they really do have a point. I mean, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're saying some really important things that pe- I think people should listen to. I mean, it's not going to stop anything, and they're not actually trying to stop pornography. I think they're just trying to raise awareness, as you said, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, I even... Go ahead, Doug, please. No, I was just going to say that even if you read some of the comments on the Sod article, the uh, I'll just give the actual title here. It's called. It says, Utah, porn is now deemed a health hazard. And if you look that up and kind of take a look at, at the, the comments on the article, even them are, you know, they're expressing extreme skepticism and talking about how it's uh, the nanny state and yet another thing that they're trying to control and blah, 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 all this kind of thing. So the, the public perception of it is um, it's surprising in a lot of ways. And I think it just goes to show if you're not kind of looking into it and really seeing um everything that kind of goes into the issue like all the things surrounding the issue um how you can you you can just kind of see this as a threat of like self-expression and that sort of thing but it really does go well beyond that yeah i found it interesting that um in those comments too doug it seems to be like well if it's consenting adults it's not an issue but we carried an article on sot called the porn debate why public health scholars should study pornography by emily rothman and she talks about studies that she's done on adolescence. And it appears, at least from the article, that, you know, a lot of these young children are exposed to it. And it's basically, you know, um, teaching them about they're going to this source for what it is to, ha- to have a healthy sex life. And that's really disturbing in a lot of ways because it's young boys, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the adolescent brain is extremely plastic. Um, it's l- like just sucking up everything it can to learn. And if this is the first and possibly only uh, source of information about sex and sexuality, you know, what kind of message is that actually imprinting on these young brains? You know, what, what kind of effect does that actually have on an individual as they're growing up? I mean, imagine, you know, when I was a kid, you know, porn was like basically finding my dad's stash of Playboys, right? Which is basically nothing except images of naked women. And you can argue that that's damaging in and of itself. But these days, kids have access to high-speed internet video, high-quality video. Um, it's it's there's a big difference there, and you know, getting getting that kind of imprinted um, at such a critical stage, I think, is incredibly damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then unlimited quantities, 24 hours a day, and not just mm-hmm. on your computer, because you can't always sneak and watch it on the family computer, but most kids, most people have smartphones, and so they can download and watch porn, you know, wherever they are. Mm-hmm. Actually, yes, social media, it's apparently a big outlet where people get are getting porn, you know, Facebook, you know. That actually surprised me when I read that. I don't have yeah. any porn pop up in my Facebook feed, but apparently yeah. these kids are. Well, and I yeah. don't even think it's that necessary just to, to... I mean, yes, it is available in some places on Facebook, but the free porn websites, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of hours 
of, mm-hmm. of content available for free, like you said, at high speed, easily accessible. Um, you know, uh, back in the day, and I'm not romanticizing this, don't get me wrong, but you know, you, you had to, uh, you know, you had to buy a magazine or you had to like buy a video or rent a video or like go to a strip club or something like that. You had to interact with other people. Now, uh, anyone can do it completely in secret, completely unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think this might be a good time. Uh, I don't want to do this too early, but I, I do think that it would fit well right now if we play that first clip from uh, Ron Gavrielli. He did a uh, uh, a, tech, a TED talk on why he stopped watching porn, and we have two clips from that talk, and uh, I think the first one would fit in pretty good right now. So let's go to that, and then we'll come back after and discuss. Okay. I stopped watching porn for two reasons, basically. The first one was that porn brought so much anger and violence into my private fantasies. And these were anger and violence that were not there originally to begin with. And I did not want that for me anymore. This was not me, and I, I, I decided to just put an end to it. Easier said than done. I'll, I'll get to it later. But The second reason was that I became to realize, I came to realizing, I think, that only by watching porn, I take part in creating a demand for filmed prostitution. Because that's what porn really is, filmed prostitution. Porna stands for prostitute, graphia stands for documentation, and prostitution was nobody's childhood dream, okay? It is always a result of trouble and distress. Now, I became aware of that gradually when I was volunteering with men and women in prostitution, some of the victims of human traffic, serving aid in brothels, under the bridge, in street corners, but you don't really need to do all that in order to understand how this mechanism of porn and prostitution works. Because porn as a genre, it's not about erotica or healthy sexual communication. It is all about male domination of women, subordinance of women, not only as a sexual practice, as a way of being, as a genderial hierarchy in this world. Like, if we would ask porn, if we were to ask porn, how does it define something as sexual? What qualifies, what defines something as sexual? Porn would laugh in our face. What defines sexual? Whatever men find arousing. Men find it arousing to choke a woman, to have brutal sex without one touch, hug, kiss, tender caress. Well, then it is sexual. It arouses men to see a woman or a child cry. It is sexual. It arouses men to rape a woman. Well, then it is sexual. In every mainstream porn gallery on the web, we can find the rape category, side by side with the humiliation category, abuse category, crying category, and so on. And this is all as if regular porn is not already filled with these motives. Even in its mildest version, the mildest version of porn, what porn is showing us like, I don't know, 80, maybe 90% of the time, is actually sex with no hands involved. And this is not how we authentically desire. <laughs> Sorry, I'll repeat that. I see your look. Second is no hands involved. Okay. <laughs> if you're not going to give up watching porn, so next time you do watch, just, just notice that, that porn cameras have no interest in capturing any normal sensual activities, such as petting, caressing, making out, touching, hugging, kissing. No. What porn cameras are into is the penetration. So normally... 
the composition will be a man and a woman. Hopefully just one, okay? So one man and one woman. His penis is inside her. Don't be picky. It doesn't matter where inside. Somewhere inside her, there is a penis. His penis is somewhere inside her, okay? And in order to not block the camera for doing this extreme close-up on the penetration, he's standing with his hands behind his back most of the time. And the woman is in this un uncomfortable position, and she needs to handle the penis inside her without damaging the hair or makeup work done on her, because that's money invested and time invested in her without disturbing his aggressive movement and mainly without blocking the camera. So the result is that we got two people having sex, different shapes and acrobatics or something, but they're having sex when the only body parts that actually touch each other are the penis and the part being penetrated. No hands involved. Now, I talk, I don't know, 250, 300 times a year, soldiers, students, pupils. No one has ever come up to me and say, Ran, you know, that, that part with sex with no hand thing, that was my authentic desire. Like, when I was 11 or 12, I never, never wanted to kiss anybody or touch them. I was not curious about that. It was all penetration to begin with. No one has ever said that. Before porn. After porn. My, in my private fantasies before watching porn, there was always a very strong narrative. And the narrative was of sensuality and mutuality, which means that I had always imagined what I would say to her. What would she possibly answer? What options do I have to respond? In real life, it never works like I planned, but it was super important in my mind in terms of arousal, the build-up, the location, the setting. Where will it be? What are the circumstances of me and her being all alone all of a sudden? How will this bodily inflaming between us will emerge step by step? It was super important before porn. After making a habit out of porn, it conquers your mind and it, it invades your brain. And, and I lost my ability to imagine, which means I found myself, and I won't be too explicit, but trying to masturbate, just closing my eyes, trying to fantasize desperately about something human and not making it because my head was bombarded with all those images of women being violated and subordinated and forced into pretending they enjoy diabolic sperm rituals, okay? So, this is pretty much the result. So I think he makes a really good point there that it's, uh, it's rewiring our authentic desires, you know, and, and what people, because intimacy is a real thing, you know, and it's, uh, uh, it's necessary between couples, I think. Um, you know, maybe not 100% of the time, there are certainly... Uh, all flavors of, of people and their own desires, but by and large, um, intimacy is something that people want, and uh, the the kind of baseline of the authentic desire, uh, especially of our children, um, you know, in what they think as they grow and mature and learn about the world and what they want, uh, is being rewired, um, and it's it's turning into this uh, complete domination. Yeah, that that was very disturbing. I think that um, one of the main purposes of porn is to disrupt the healthy bonds between men and women, between children and their parents. It's basically a psychopathic representation of sex. It's what psychopaths like, and they can't help but spread their warped worldview onto the entire population. So this is just one of the ways and that they're doing it. 
Yep. It should be, I think, pretty traumatizing to be exposed. You know, I don't know what age was Gavrielli when he first watched porn. But what I'm getting from this research is that, you know, very young kids are exposed by it and they're getting like, they don't know what to do with it, what to think about it. And they get it, they're getting addicted, like hooked on it, like night after night watching it. And their lives deteriorate completely. Like, you know, parents are reacting like, what is wrong with my kid? And it's really sad because a lot of kids just stumble into it accidentally, or maybe some kid will send them a video link as a joke, like, haha, isn't this disgusting? Or maybe they're just curious about what sex is, and they pretty much get sucked into this perverted world, and they become addicted, and they can't get out of it. And they think that they're going to learn about how sex really works, like what to do and, you know, how to perform. But the effects of porn makes it so you actually cannot perform with an actual person. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and also, this is parents quite can't talk about it with their kids either, you know. It's like one of those really hard bridges to gap. And, and that's why yeah. I think the Utah ruling is actually interesting because it brings that conversation into the forefront for people. Like, now parents have to address it. Sorry, uh, Elliot, I, I interrupted you. No, it's okay. Um, I was just going to add that I think a lot of the time um, children are of such a young age that it's even spanning into sort of the pre... Um, they're not necessarily sexually developed in any way. And so um, when they come across this material... Um, they really don't know what to do with it or how to process it. And um, and it can cause really deep-set issues in the way that they um, learn to perceive what intimacy truly is and what eroticism is. And what essentially, um, as, as Tiffany said, the, the bond between a male and a female... Um, and we, we, we're starting to see this um, among a whole generation now. Um, of course, it started with the, the sort of Playboy era, but it's, it's gradually gotten so bad now that you have children who are under the age of 12 years old, um, and this is a very common thing. You go to school when you're a kid and, you know, you, you're shown these videos and um, and and this is this is uh, it's it's absolutely rife. It's I I, I dread to think um, what may be the result of this in the next ten or twenty years and how this will actually span out in terms of the mental health of um, both men and women and the state of um, of human inter interpersonal relationships. Well, I think we're seeing that right right now. Yeah. Uh, just that, uh, you know, it. I, I appreciate what you're saying. I think it will actually probably be worse in 10 to 20 years. But I do think that we're saying that we're seeing the results of that uh, even even now. Um, you know, if you poll a lot of young people, and uh, I'm trying not trying to paint everybody with the same brush. Of course, all people are different, but there is a uh, there is kind of an epidemic of a lack of intimacy and a view. A view towards intimacy as a um, uh, or sexuality as a as a power play 
um, as an image kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, just look at what we were talking before the show about pop culture. And Doug, you had said how Russell Brand was talking about how we're basically surrounded by softcore porn and, uh, you know, just in, in media and advertising. And I'm not even sure that it's that softcore. Of course, you can quabble over the definitions, but um, look at the, the popularity of that uh, that song, Blurred Lines. I forget the artist's name, if you can call him an artist. Robin if you if you read the lyrics to that song, it is and pardon my French, it's awful. I, I was gonna swear there, but I won't. <laughs> it's 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 awful. Uh and you know, yeah, it's a catchy tune, but you know, that's part of the problem. Um, because you just hear it and you're like, Yeah, okay, I'm gonna start dancing and like this is great and it just kinda gets into you. Um but not just that, but the uh the video. I had the displeasure of, of watching the music video for that tune and it's even worse. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, and I'm not a prude, you know, but I'm just like, God, this sucks. Like, there's no redeeming value here. Um, <laughs> not, not only no redeeming value, but it's, uh, it's actually kind of, uh, kind of poisonous. And I, the interesting thing to me is that there's <clears throat> kind of two sides to this. It's like, I guess with any addiction, okay, so let's say you get addicted to alcohol and you get your, your pleasure centers programmed you know, to that hit, uh, to that certain buzz, and you can't feel other things in your life without that buzz. Um, porn works in the same way, like we've been talking about, you know, uh, especially, and more especially when it started young, but even if it started at a later age, uh, it rewires your pleasure response. You get a dopamine hit um, when you fulfill that desire. Uh, you run, you know, you run grooves uh, into your brain that says, like, this is how I, this is what I need to do to feel this way. Um, and you begin uh, getting into that habit. Uh, and then that affects how you, uh, how you live the rest of your life, and how you interact with other people, just like alcoholism uh, causes you to suppress your emotions. And when you're dry, uh, when you're an alcoholic, when you're dry, you, uh, you can't emotionally process things cannot deal with other people in a normal way. Um, just like when you're watching porn, you cannot have normal intimacy uh, with other people. Now, granted, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's a, it's a detriment, you know. Mm-hmm. It is, it is, well, I was going to say uh, related to the, a little bit about the research available, is that porn isn't like another, like any other you know, visual task or or addiction. There is actually research which shows that you know most of the time watching movies or conducting any other visual test sends extra blood flow to the brain region that processes visual stimuli. But mm-hmm. not with porn. You know, research have found they. It seems that porn uh, makes the brain uh, to it, uh, the brain shunts the blood elsewhere, perhaps to other regions of the brain responsible for sexual arousal, but, you know, basically, it has an effect of quieting your brain, at least your visual stimuli, even though you are watching, you know, something visual. Maybe that's where that old saying that masturbating can make you go blind comes from. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Metaphorical, yeah. There's another way too that uh, that porn is you know comparing 
porn, you know, it, it's controversial to say that porn is addictive because, you know, some uh, psychologists have said, yes, absolutely, it is addictive. You know, it shows the signs uh, similar to other addictions. And others have come out saying, no, it's not addictive. It doesn't, it's not the same thing. Like, you know, to have a porn habit is not the same thing as being uh, addicted and that you can't actually be addicted to porn. But uh, one one way that I we were you know that I was reading about that uh, um, porn is very different from other kind of compulsive behaviors is that um, you don't technically have to stop. You know there are limits. You know there's only so much you can drink. There's only so much bad food you can binge on. You know there's physical limitations to what you can do. But a porn user can spend hours upon hours upon hours. You know, just watching, looking for that next clip, still like searching for, you know, that, that perfect porn clip, whatever that would be. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting in that respect because it kind of bypasses all the physical limitations that would normally be there, which is why I think it can be so insidious in that way. Well, I think it fits other definitions of addiction too. Like, um, there's one video where they're talking about the four C's of addiction and, uh, I think it relates to pornography as well. Uh, the first one is continued use in spite of negative consequences. The second one is the compulsion to use. Third is the inability to control your use. And the fourth one is craving, either psychological or physical. So I think mm. that, you know, excessive porn watching has all of those quality so to say that it's not an addiction i think is disingenuous yeah there's other ways to even even um you know physical brain processes that happen when you're a, a chronic porn user uh one of them is sensitization which makes you um highly reactive like hyper reactive to uh addiction cues so you figure like uh you know a um an individual who's an alcoholic uh you know be walking past a bar or uh, smelling alcohol or something like that as a cue, and it makes them want to uh, to reengage in the activity. Um, with porn, you, that people have those same kind of things. Sometimes even just turning on a computer can have that. It, it can be a cue. Um, there's desensitization on the other end of things, which means that you need an increasing amount of the of the stimulus in order to get the same kind of effect. So you see that with, with drug use, you know, people um, start be- becoming ha- like habituated to that one thing and you start needing more and more of the same substance to get um, high. Well, it's the same kind of thing with porn, except with porn, people are looking for more and more extreme pornography to, uh, to, to kind of get to the same place. Whereas before it might have just been like naked women, eventually they're at the place where they're having to watch like, you know, rape porn or something insane like that. Um, there's something called hypofrontality, which is basically um, a weakened frontal lobe that happens with addiction. So uh, that decreases um, your resistance or, or your impulse control. So, um, you know, you what, while originally you might have been able to say, you know what, watching porn right now would be a bad idea. Uh, eventually you get to the point where it's like, well, you know, my wife's out of the house for five minutes so I can watch some porn while she's gone. Um, even though like, you know, Normally, your frontal cortex would be like, this is a bad idea. Um, it, it, you, you start to have less of that control there, that less of that voice of reason. Um, and the final one was altered stress response. 
Um, so that's basically just that uh, addiction uh, makes you much more uh, sensitive to stress and looking to mitigate that stress with the addictive substance. So that happens with porn as well. So all four of those things are hit with um, porn addiction as well as substance addiction. So, yeah, I, I think it's addictive. And as you're watching and, um, porn and you have all these tabs open and you keep watching, trying to find the perfect video, and it's just like this endless stream. And in the meantime, while you're doing that, your dopamine levels like rise and you can keep them at a very high state for hours and hours. And then finally, you, you'll finish off and you get this gigantic opioid hit, which is like the biggest opioid hit that a person can get naturally. So, Yeah. I mean, it can be very addictive on the brain level, so I don't understand how people can say that there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, well, that's if, what I was thinking as well. Like, it literally rewires your brain, so I'm actually shocked that a professor in neuroscience is, like, against the bill, you know. The well, if we, um, if we look at the, um, the sort of target audience for the majority of porn... Um, I'm sure I read a statistic that most of the porn consumed or watched by the majority of people are actually um, between the ages of, I think it was 14 and 19 years old. Now, um, on, the, on the subject of the prefrontal cortex, um, now the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that can allow you to think and reflect on your behavior and decide what is the best thing to do in a given situation, um, that's actually not developed until the mid-20s, until mm -hmm. someone's sort of like 25 years old. And so <laughs> when, when a teenager watches something like porn, they are um, especially susceptible to becoming highly addicted to it simply because their brain is not wired yet to be able to, um, you know, deal with that stimulus and to process it in any way. And so um, I think this is now why you, you, we're seeing an, an epidemic um, in, in porn addiction among very young sort of adolescents and teenagers. Yeah. Yeah, and when you're so young and you keep raising your dopamine levels so high every day, day after day, year after year, your brain becomes desensitized and it starts making less dopamine receptors. So you have to keep up in the ante all the time and doing, watching things that are even more disgusting and getting that shock, which plays into it too, and having that anxiety, which plays into the addiction as well. So it's just bad news yeah. all around. You're at such a young age and you're, it's not permanent, but it's serious. You're causing some serious damage to your brain. Yeah, there's, um, there's a really good book um, I read recently. I would recommend it to anyone. Um, it's called Pornland, um, How Pornography Has Hijacked, hijacked Our Sexuality. Hmm. And it's by um, a, socio a sociology professor. Um, I think her name's Gail Dines. And she basically talks, uh, talks about in her book how um, this, this sort of increased um, stimulus, this, um, like you, what you were just saying, Tiffany, um, about how what may arouse someone at the start of watching porn uh, over, over you know, many months, um, it, it starts to get boring. And so what these people are forced to do is they need this dopamine hit 
So they go for sort of more dark, um, more abusive and more brutal porn to sort of um, fulfill this urge that they have. And uh, an event watching outright um, rape, you know, mm. and, and she sort of links up a lot of the um, the sexual assaults. She gives some good statistics about how sexual assaults and sexual abuse has um, rapidly increased um, ever since the introduction of pornography and how this, um, this, this increased need for dopamine, this desensitization, um, gradually leads to this, um, you know, this more brutal form of sexuality, which then can actually manifest in someone going out and actually attacking someone. You know, because eventually the, the porn doesn't satisfy the urge and therefore they are driven to, um, you know, to take that one step further. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have some statistics to support that here at hand. From all market segments of porn, child pornography is one of the fastest growing with 60% of domains hosted in the United States. Um, 2008 alone, the Internet Watch Foundation found 1,540 individual child pornography domains. And incidentally, child pornography amounted to 82% of the growth in the industry from 94 to 2006. Oh. Wow. 82%? Mm -hmm. Wow. That is so disturbing. It I mean, this, the, the crazy thing is that on the, on the subject of the pedophilia, And the child pornography. Um, there, there was actually a few interviews that were transcripted in that book that I was just talking about. And um, basically, Gail Dines had interviewed these convicted pedophiles, and um, and she she basically asked them whether whether they had always been whether this was something that had always been um, with them. You know, this attraction to children. And the majority of them actually said that, no, they, they weren't originally attracted to children in any way. It was only after they started watching pornography and they, they, you know, they went into this downward spiral um, that, that they actually became attracted to children because it, it, it was almost like it was so um, different to what they'd ever It's so been forbidden. To, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Forbidden, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's got the shock value and everything. Exactly. Here's, an, here's another interesting statistic. According to Michael Burke, he's the chief psychologist for the U.S. Federal Marshals, 85% of men arrested for possession of child pornography had sexually exploited a child. 80% of purchases were active abusers, and they were at the time of arrest actively abusing children. Reinforcing the neural pathways connected to abusing or watching the abuse of children increases the likelihood of doing it yourself by reinforcing the same neural pathways. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence, too, that the that it's actually the, the, the porn that is leading to these kind of like perversions, for lack of a better term, that it is kind of that that whole escalation process of needing more and more uh, extreme material to um to be able to become turned on or whatever whatever the the ultimate goal is and uh i i was reading somewhere i can't remember which article it was in but it was basically saying that um one of the signs that you have a problem with pornography is that you have started to take on tastes in in porn that never existed 
prior to viewing porn. So you start to get into some kind of weird fetish of some kind that that never existed prior to um, you actually watching porn. That means it is a result of the porn, that it isn't actually um, something that kind of is innate in you. So it's pretty disturbing when you kind of connect the dots here and see that porn could actually be turning people into pedophiles. And that's really disturbing mm-hmm. if you think about children watching porn, like really young mm-hmm. kids, 8 or 12 years old, and they have no prior sexual history, and this is what their brain is primed to. So it's like, I don't know, I, a pervert factory is what these psychopaths are churning out, basically. Basically, yeah. It's yeah. insane. When I was in med school, you know, in the late 90s, you know, the psychiatrist teacher used to tell us that if you see a young children draw, making drawings of genitals, you know, that's just not, that is abnormal. You, you should think about sexual abuse. But now it, it gets to the point that, you know, even children or, you know, young kids like 12 years old, they're getting exposed to all kinds of scenery. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it has an effect, you know, you see the kids in school, they're complaining girlfriends and boyfriends dating you know that their that their boyfriends are forcing them to do like uh act out scenes that they watch in porn you know yeah that's yeah. exactly what emily yeah. rothman was talking about in her article about why she decided to start researching it and she says uh, in researching pornography and adolescent health um she had some unanticipated findings about dating violence so in 2001, she analyzed data of more than 300 Boston area 14 to 21 year old girls and found that nearly half of them had experienced physical or sexual abuse by a dating partner. Although the study wasn't about pornography, 34% of the young people surveyed had seen pornography in the last month and they had been forced or coerced to participate in sexual behavior that the predator had saw in pornography. So this is leading to this theme of sexual violence in dating or date rape. It's pretty, it's pretty shocking. There's also some research that uh, noted that men who viewed any amount of porn were more likely to report decreased empathy for any rape victim, believe that a woman who dresses provocatively deserves to be raped, report anger at women who flirt but refuse to have sex, experienced substantially decreased interest in their partners and intimacy and report and report increased interest in coercing partners partners into unwanted sex acts well that's a huge i mean how many times have you heard the phrase she was asking for it you know and i i think it's absolutely disgusting but i have heard that phrase a lot uh, it's just so unfortunate um the the culture has shifted in such a way I mean, uh, again, I don't want to paint anybody, everybody with the same brush. I don't think respect has completely gone out the window, but it is on its way out the window, you know. Definitely. Um, certainly in the, in the sense of respect for um, just the female form in and yeah. of itself, um, you know, uh, because in, in pornography, the, the sort of stereotypical um, female uh, usually has a, a very specific body type with a certain size of breast um, and usually no pubic hair, funny enough, 
which, you know, is markedly resemblant to children. But you've got children now who've been asked, um, <laughs> you know, um, the, the idea of a woman with pubic hair is revolting to these children. And it is, it's got to a point where, um, where <sighs> a, a whole generation of, of children are essentially um, they've they've been taught to hate the natural female form, <clears throat> and unless you have that unnatural female form that's represented in pornography, as a woman you feel useless because no one is going to want to be intimate with you unless you look like some kind of porn star. And, and that's why there's an increase in plastic surgeries of, um, what was it called? Uh, labioplasty. Labioplasty. Among adolescents. Basically, the commodification of females, you know, it's a commodity. It's a thing. It's not a person. Yeah, that's your worth. Just how, how you look and nothing else. Yeah, the beauty standard is really mind-blowing to me. I mean, like, you know, and I've, I've had these conversations with people uh, in the past where, you know, uh, she's hot or, me, you know, she's a little, maybe she's a little bit fat when, you know, no, she's not fat. <laughs> you know, like um, the way that men perceive women and the standards that they hold them to. I mean, and again, I hate to say this, but I have heard this phrase, but the face, you know, everything is attractive, but the face. Uh, and that's, you know, it, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. Um, and it's just really, really um, completely distorted how we interact uh, with with women and how women interact with men. Uh, well, and, and imagine, you know, I'm, I'm not um, I'm not tapped into the uh, the homosexual world, but I imagine it's probably impacted that as well. How men interact with with other men that they might be attracted to and the same with with uh, with lesbians. You know, that, that even, you know, the intimacy in those relationships is damaged by these beauty standards. Yeah, and I don't think this is, um, like, you'll have certain people saying this is an attack on women or this is an attack on men. I think it's every human being who actually um, is subject to this filth. Uh, <laughs> there's no other word, word for it. It's complete and utter filth. Um, because whichever whichever way you want to look at it, um, the 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 males who who watch this, they're having their 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 psychological makeup completely distorted, and that is in turn having a, you know a secondary effect on on the way that women are treated in society, and the way that um, that everyone functions basically, and it's so pervasive that it. it it actually filters through into almost every every aspect of society. Um, you know, if if you look at Hollywood, you look at mainstream media, you look at music. Um, pornography is now being accepted somewhat, and is um is actually quite glorified. Um, you know, you have prominent people like Oprah. Um, they have porn stars on their show, and you know that that's watched by how many million Americans every day. Um, and so you have this this really unnatural, um, unnatural thing, which has been made to be accepted, you know, and it is apparently the norm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so even if you don't watch pornography, you're still affected by it because it just saturates every aspect of our society. Um, there was, I don't know the exact uh, rates, but there was a, a study they were talking about Japan, like how the interest, they, they polled these young men, they uh, asked them if they were interested in having intimate, intimate relationships with a woman, and like a couple, like they asked the question, it was fairly high, you know, a, a large percentage of the men just weren't interested in having a relationship with an actual woman, and they did it again a couple years later and it went up even higher so i don't want to just point the finger at japan i'm sure there's the same all over the world but it just saps your natural drive to want to relate to real people well it's an actual phenomenon like it is an actual documented phenomenon that uh that the people who are kind of these chronic porn users they have all kinds of kind of sexual dysfunction start to show up one being erectile dysfunction there is an actual uh, thing called, you know, porn-related erectile dysfunction, and uh, just the the what people start to find is that they they are no longer able to be turned on or, um, you know, function sexually function with an actual partner. That you know, the porn gives them such a dopamine hit, such a hit that they've rewired that pathway to respond as a voyeur to these things rather than an actual participant. So it's like their their brain, like it's like they they no longer recognize the actual act itself. They only recognize kind of watching um, somebody else do it. Mm-hmm. And this is a psychopathic worldview imposed, you know, basically the population with profits only in the United States of thirteen. billion. It is estimated that around the world, um, the global market power of of the porn industry is $97 billion. And this is basically primarily on the registered pornography operations and estimations, which excludes um, the gray area of the online world. So I was pretty shocked after I read that because, you know, it's basically like a country, you know, even the Dominican Republic as the global market power of $99 billion, you know, it's pornography is right there, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and that Huge same article profits. Gabby's quoting from, it's actually called The Ponerizing of Sexuality. Porn isn't harmless for the, either those watching or partaking. They talk about how 50 of the best-selling adult videos, approximately 304 scenes, 90% included physical violence against women. So the vast majority of which are females. This means when people look without much effort for porn, it is extremely likely they will be seeing violence against women, which undoubtedly increases the likelihood of themselves doing these things or finding them acceptable, even increasing increasing the likelihood of them accepting the rape myths. And that was the stats that Gabby shared earlier about the desensitizing so even if you watch porn and you don't go out and rape somebody, just the fact that you keep purchasing or clicking on certain links that show violent porn, you're actually participating in the rape of the people who are participating in those movies. You're participating in sex trafficking. You're participating yeah, you're in pedophilia. Yeah. If you create a demand for it, they're going to keep churning it out. Yeah. I even had a close brush with that uh, in my uh, 
in my 20s, uh, early 20s. So I'm a web developer, right? And I had gotten an offer to uh, to build porn websites um, from a business contact that I had. And uh, I could have made six figures a year doing that. And that was 15 years ago. Wow. You know, I mean, it's crazy. But these people, the people that I'm referring to that, that offered me that job were total assholes. They were just like, wrong, you know, in, in pretty much every way, completely disrespectful, completely vapid, completely empty. Um, that, that whole world, the very little bit of it that I saw was, uh, was like the seventh level of hell. I mean, it was just, uh, nothing redeeming about it. Yeah. How could you not be completely empty and completely vapid? If this is your product, this is what you're putting out. You can't have a soul and do this kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. We got a question in our chat. Um, <clears throat> one of our chatters says, I wonder how intertwined porn is with other addictive behavior. Does it lead to further abuse of other substances based on brainwashing? And with how much substance abuse goes on, does it not reinforce through a positive feedback loop other addictive behaviors? What do you guys think about that? I'm not personally familiar with any studies that, that link the two. Say if you're addicted to porn, you might be more prone to drink or um, you know, do addictive drugs or anything like that. Um, yeah, I don't know about don't that, know, but, I but I, porn participants like strippers or uh, porn actors and actresses, their substance abuse is just rife within that community. Mm-hmm. You have to kind mm-hmm. of like deaden yourself or numb yourself and actually, in order to actually participate in such things. Yeah, that was something in, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix called The Girl Next Door. That's about the, the rising kind of modern porn industry and, and internet porn. And um, it's just, it's money and drugs. I mean, it's sex, money, and drugs, you know, just flowing. Um, stacks of cash, stacks of coke, um, pills, you know, uppers, downers, everything. Uh, so, you know, and never mind alcohol. I mean, alcohol is kind of like the baseline. That's not even the worst part of it. So. Yeah, it reminds me. Uh, not too long ago, these days actually, like a filmmaker in Spain, which is a very famous porn filmmaker that is, he got arrested um, because of um, child abuse. And apparently one of the girls was saying that she didn't want to consent to participate in the movies, but she did after she took some drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, it goes hand in hand, you know, even when you read the news, even in the political area, you know where you see a lot of um, the sex slaves in the Middle East, in Syria, you know, a lot of the abusers just, like, use a lot of drugs, you know, hardcore drugs. Yeah, how else can you lower somebody's normal defenses or their normal reactions of disgust to what you're making them do, except to drug them? Yeah, you even see that in the date rape statistics with uh, Rufinol or Rufis, they call them the date rape drug, where... You know, it's pretty common going out to a bar, somebody slips a drug into your drink, and that's it. I mean, you black out, you have no idea what's happened, and, you know, it's, well, you know, oh, she was consenting, but she's not even in her mind, in her body. It's It's either drugs or it's actually death threats, literally, like, you know. Famous porn star, you know, related her story in that same article that um, the Panerai sexuality article, how she was basically threatened, you know, so she consented just to protect her life. 
Mm-hmm. Well, kind of looping there's back a, to um, how... I was oh, just going to say, um, there's a, a very good quote article um, by Chris Hedges. It was up on SART and it's called Fifty Shades of Filth. The glorification and acceptance of pornography reveal, reveals society's moral bank, bankruptcy. So um, this is the quote. It says, Pornography has socialized a generation of men into watching sexual torture. You are not born with that capacity. You have to be trained into it. Just like you train soldiers to kill. If you are going to carry out violence against method so basically um elliot you cut out for a second there could you read the last part of that quote oh okay sorry about that oh yeah if you are going to carry out violence against a group of people you have to dehumanize them first Mm -hmm. and that's essentially what this is when we look at it um face to face you know pornography is nothing but sexual torture um, it is in no way respectful. It is, you know, it often features violence, um, hate. You know, there's no love involved. There's no intimacy. There's. It's um, it's merely reduced to human beings as objects. Mm-hmm. I said on the video is is it cutting out? Yes, a little bit. Yeah, you're cutting out here and there, yeah. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Well, I liked what, uh, there was a quote in in that article by Robert Jensen, and basically it sums up the discussion today is pornography is what the end of the world looks like. Yeah, Yeah, I thought thought that was very appropriate. There was also a relation with uh, Rome, (laughs) the fallen empire, (laughs) Because it's like, uh, he quotes it like the end, you know, when when it gets this bad, cities right now, you know that we're in the end. We're nearing, we're nearing the end. Yeah, and how um, basically the porn industry has hijacked the sexuality of an entire culture and is laying to waste a whole generation of boys. And when you lay to waste a generation of boys, you lay to waste a generation of girls. And then back to yeah. that, those... Uh, um, explosion and sex-related violence, including domestic abuse, rape, and gang rape. He talks about how a rape is reported every 6.2 minutes in the United States, but the estimated total taking into account unreported assaults is perf- perhaps five times tire- higher than that. And that was actually a quote by Rebecca Solnit from a book called Men Explain Things to Me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to think that the you know, whatever the statistics are, it's usually higher. Um, and just from uh, personal experience, talking to a friend, a good friend of mine started a group uh, in downstate Michigan um, called the Manasseh Project, which uh, helps to raise awareness about uh, sex trafficking and human trafficking, and actually does um, you know like uh, uh, rescue work uh, and counseling and uh, you know shelter. Uh, therapy, all these kind of things. Um, And some of the statistics that they get uh, when you bear those out across the whole country, I mean, it's uh, 
it's hard to think about. I mean, even for somebody with a, and, and I, I guess I tend to think that I have kind of a strong constitution, but it is still extremely hard to think about. Um, one of those were like in Grand Rapids, Michigan alone, one city, which is not even that big of a city, there are uh, documented over 3,000 underage uh, sex workers. Yeah, the, there's some pretty you know. disturbing statistics about human trafficking. Um, we carried an article on modern-day slavery affecting 30 million women and children. And this was back in 2012, but they were talking about recent estimates that there are currently around 200,000 children between the age of 12 to 15 who are sold for sex by pimps, traffickers every year in the United States. And that the problem is epidemic, but often hides in plain sight. And I tried to find, you know, uh, bills or especially in the U.S., like anybody trying to address this trafficking issue. And in this article, they had one, the Obama administration under the impulse of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, they had Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and that was about it. So, you know, like, oh, it, did anybody even hear of the Human Trafficking Prevention Month? You know, I mean, it just seems like it's like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll make this month, but then we won't ever deal with the real issue of it. Yeah, no, I, I had never even heard about that, honestly. <laughs> I did, I it, but it, I was looking for it, so, <laughs> you know, I found it. <laughs> I mean, we've seen if you if you have the uh, the 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 ability uh, to delve into the topic, um, you know, looking into the cases of of actual documented and prosecuted uh, human trafficking cases among uh, politicians and people in power, I have some suspicion uh, that that is is a part of the reason why it's not more widely known or prosecuted uh, is that it's a uh, it's a power game. And, uh, again, not painting everybody with the same brush, but there are, uh, quite a few, uh, people in high positions of, uh, of government office who have been, uh, convicted and have, um, you know, has brought to light, uh, giant, uh, sex trafficking rings, um, that are pervasive. Uh, you know, they operate at a high level of efficiency, profitability, uh, throughout the country and, and secrecy. Um, I mean, uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with and how I can't remember his name, but the guy who was the head of a uh, credit union and it was somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. The Franklin uh, scandal yeah. with Larry King, not to be confused with Larry yeah, King. Larry CNN. King. <laughs> right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. He had actually ran a, a camp a, a, a boys camp, which then turned out sex slaves and they were sold off to this ring. Mm-hmm. And there's also I mean, evidence that have, the, uh, um, the Dutro affair in Belgium, I think it was, ran much deeper mm-hmm. than just this one guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, wasn't the whole Larry King scandal? Um, didn't have that. Didn't didn't that have um, very close ties to sort of the U.S. Uh, presidential sort of body at that time? Yeah. Isn't there some links with high politics and everything? Yeah, and it's, I think it's Senior. similar. <laughs> yeah. And then and then go ahead and look at um, Jimmy Savile uh, in the UK a few, few years ago. That whole massive scandal came out about G- Jimmy Savile, how he 
he um he's meant to have sort of abused you know thousands of children and um and he's extremely close with the with the british royal family you know he used to go out to dinner with prince charles and and blah 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 and it raises the question is you know do you think these guys really didn't know you know is it <clears throat> they didn't know what this guy was getting up to or was it that they were turning a blind eye which says more about them but then it could also be that they are all involved in it as well i mean i don't know if we can ever truly grasp the sheer depth of um of how pervasive this 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 really is yeah who's that yeah. friend of bill clinton who's in trouble now for forcing girls into sex slavery and making them have sex with uh his rich and powerful friends i forget his name but it's just so pervasive like through all higher levels of government and the uh the Pentagon employees who are caught with child porn on their computers. Uh, it's just disgusting. It's so perversive that now the government is uh, funding, you know, adolescent sex conferences and sexual education, which is, resembles more like a, a manual and how to be a pedophile, you know. Yeah, that was Jeffrey Epstein or Epstein. Yeah. There's also that recent case with uh, Dennis Hastert, Speaker of the House. Oh yeah, you know, and he had uh, he had paid off his victim, um, and now is being sentenced to what 15 months, hmm. which is you know, essentially a slap on the wrist. In some fancy private prison somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just a it's a, a a dog and pony show, you know, to say oh we're we're punishing this guy, but I mean, who believes that? I mean, even the judge doesn't believe that. I don't think it says here in this article I'm looking at on CBS news, judge Thomas M. Durkin branded Hastert a serial child molester at his sentencing. So yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, this is some dark shit and it's everywhere. Uh, you know, but it's, we've talked in the past about the ability to look at everything in the world. Um, you know, it can be extremely difficult sometimes. Uh, but I also think it's, you know, you don't need to become, uh, obsessed with it or necessarily become an expert or, you know, a researcher of human trafficking. Um, but denying its existence, I think is the wrong thing to do. Uh, you, you must at least say, yes, this does go on. And, and just sit for a moment and just contemplate the fact and the uh, the extent to which uh, it occurs um, and what that means about our world, you know, and, and allow that to uh, give you some insight into the, uh, the state of things. Yeah, it's true. You know, it, it makes me think like one of our, our chatters here was talking about how, um, you know, the, the widespread panic about sex trafficking, what did he call it, moral panic, has extreme has uh, produced extremely flawed statistics. And I didn't look at the link that he sent, but I mean, it, realistically, like the statistics are kind of beside the point. Um, the fact of the matter is, if, if one person is being forced into some kind of sex trafficking or some kind of forced pornography or, or, or some sort of situation, that's, that's too much. 
that in itself is a terrible thing. So regardless of whether or not the statistics are inflated or if, you know, there's a, there's a, kind of this widespread moral panic, um, I think that it, 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 it doesn't matter. You know, the fact that this is going on at all says a lot about our world. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And this is not, you know, for, for anyone who, uh, um, might, uh, look at porn occasionally or, you know, even be addicted to it. Um, this is not separate. This is not separate from that. It's not like, you know, you can pull up whatever, like Pornhub or whatever.com and say, you know, okay, well, I'm not involved in all of the crazy, like sex trafficking rings. They are intimately tied together. Um, yeah. and it is creating the demand for that. Uh, and you, you become a, a part of that. Um, and, yeah, I think know, that you should. People I was just who... going to say, like, it, it, it's important to allow that to uh, to soak into your conscience, if that makes sense. You know, give it a moment and really think about it. I think that people who regularly watch porn are maybe soothing, soothing themselves with the thought that the participants in those videos are doing it all of their own free will. And they're yeah. not a lot of the times. They're either drugged, coerced, threatened. Uh, beaten into doing this kind of thing and by watching porn you're supporting that that's important to highlight it's just like Gabrielle said on the video we quoted earlier in the show is this is nobody's like childhood dream you know that yeah. if you think it is then you're 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 partnerized right yeah um, speaking of Ron Gabrielli, we have one more clip that I think uh, would still be good to play. If you guys don't mind listening to that, he just talks about how invasive it can become. Um, and uh, he makes some really good points in this clip. So let, let's go to that and then we'll, we'll come back and discuss a little bit after. Porn is in our households, whether we want it or not. And I believe that it does not agree with our well-being. And because we have Internet in the Western world, all over the place, almost in every cellular phone now, we've got 90% of 12-year-olds watching porn on a regular basis. And it has both a, an addictive effect and a paralyzing effect. It's addictive because we develop somewhat of a dependency in porn, but the paralyzing part is because, mainly for young boys and men, because porn is teaching us that, as a man, you are solely valued in sex, by having a large penis and an eternal erection. According to porn, being a valuable sexual partner does not relate with being sensual, passionate, attentive, generous, well-coordinated. None of the above. <laughs> it is all about large penis and eternal sunshine, which we don't possess. So boys become paralyzed, and if they don't become paralyzed by watching porn, very often they turn into imitators of what they saw, which means they become aggressors. Aggressors, even when emotion is involved, like there is so much sexual abuse going on nowadays within the confines of, of what we perceive from the outside as beautiful teenage love stories or healthy adult relationships because we don't really talk about sex. We just see it all over the place. We don't really talk about it. So what goes on in the confines of, of a certain room, but these are all sexual mutations that happens. If we talk about women, it's not only that, but... Young girls and women get the message, not only from hardcore porn, but from our porn-influenced mainstream culture. Have you seen any Miley Cyrus Lady Gaga video clip, commercials? That's porn with clothes on it. So 
Girls get this notion that if you want to be worthy of love, first and foremost, you have to be worthy of sexual desire. And now, the definition of sexual desire almost equals be like a porn star. So I work in dozens and dozens of high schools and junior highs. In every single one of these schools, I find girls that at a certain point agreed to be documented in an intimate situation because they wanted to please some guy that they had feelings for. And this guy misappropriated their trust. Always same story, so he sells it on WhatsApp application or, or on the web, in the Internet. And normally nobody even addresses him in terms of moral. But it is always girls that suffer from shaming and mortification. They can change school, they drop out normally. Change school, move to another city and still be haunted on social networks. They develop clinical depressions, severe eating disorders as if we don't have enough reasons in our culture to develop eating disorders. They become so isolated socially. So some of them, like Amanda Todd, rest in peace, some of them actually commit suicide because they find no more value in life or in themselves. So porn is not only in our house, it is a capital case. It is not a minor phenomenon in our society. It is a question of life and death sometimes. It is mainly a question of life and death for the people who participate in porn, because porn is not an embodiment of freedom of speech, freedom of occupation, blah, blah, blah. No, it's an embodiment of sex exploitation, working side by side with human traffic, raping, pimping, solicitation. For every one porn star with a book contract or a production company, we've got hundreds of thousands of women and girls who does not survive out there. Literally, they just don't make it. The sex industry just, just how do you say, chews them up and spits them back into brothels, into hooking in the street, escorting massage parlors with happy or unhappy ending, depends who you ask. And, and, and I'm not joking, this is serious life. This is the whole spectrum of prostitution. So many of them doesn't even make it to the age of 50. I'm talking countries that the average life expectancy is 75, 76 years now. They don't make it to the age of 50. Four reasons mainly. Drugs, STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, being murdered by a John, a pimp, a boyfriend. And the fourth reason is suicide once again. Because if you're a prostitute, on camera or off camera, you're in the situation that we can refer to as social death. We have all sat in the dinner table with people who probably consumed prostitution that have been to a brothel once, twice, at least. We never sat down to the table with a prostitute, not with a declared one. So that's social death. It is not glamorous, not at all. And when I sit in the privacy of my room and I watch porn, even without paying, no need to pay, it's free, okay? I hope you know that, if you're still consuming. Whatever I am watching is creating a demand, and wherever there is a demand, there will be supply. There's a correlation. If I watch pornography of black older women, somebody is going to go out and pimp black older women. Asian minors, somebody is already trafficking Asian minors in order to film them, okay? Israeli women, Palestinian women, WASP, all-American college girls, that are strong in the last few years, it's a very upcoming category. The scum of the earth are already out there trying to solicitate and prostitute these women on camera. So I stopped watching porn for my personal well-being, my intimate communication, my private erotic life, my, you know, reclaiming control and responsibility over my mind. But by doing that, 
I actually stopped contributing to this horrible sex industry, and that's a good thing to do, I believe. And I would really like to propose that notion of physically and emotionally safe sex. Emotionally safe sex. It does not mean going back to be conservative or unliberated sexually. I'm all for sexual freedom. It just means that we need to put genderial hierarchy aside, subordinates aside, and bring back in, let's just say, laughter as a critical mass for intimacy. Two souls, two humans, two souls alone in private. Can they please have a laugh together? I don't care if they know each other for a decade or for an hour. If two souls alone in a room does not manage to have a laugh together, what good could possibly grow there, sexual and non-sexual? So again, I think <clears throat> Gabriele makes some really good points there. Um, you know, specifically that uh, this is uh, damaging intimacy. It's damaging our brains. It's damaging our culture. Um, Creating a supply. I think that's yeah. very important to highlight. Yeah. So how can we reclaim our brains and our culture and society from the scourge of pornography? I think well, the first thing is question, not participating. Yeah. Ra raising awareness. You mm -hmm. know, I, that's why I, I personally found this Utah resolution interesting. Again, as I said on last week's show when we brought it up, not that I think it's going to solve anything, but the fact that, that there needs to be education and I don't mean sex education like some of us who went to school in the 70s and 80s had but like a real addressing of what children may be exposed to and I know that's super controversial especially coming from an education background like you know you can't teach kids about this you might suggest things that they were never interested in but from doing the study for this show and reading the reams and reams of statistics it's out there and to act like it's too taboo or it's too prude is completely unrealistic you know it's a problem and it needs to be addressed and and i think like gavriel as that was his name he you know the fact that he's going into high school and junior high school and giving these kind of speeches is admirable and i'm sure he's receiving parental backlash as a result, but it needs yeah. to be done. It needs to be addressed. It's like yeah. if we just bury our head in the sand, it's just going to continue to get worse. It won't get better. Yeah. And you yeah, have to know what it what... is that you're fighting against, not necessarily fighting, but what you're objecting to. Because I don't think a lot of yeah. people realize how damaging pornography is, even if they don't watch it themselves. They don't realize the extent that it affects people's mental and emotional processing. I don't think they realize mm -hmm. how deeply it goes. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. worse than being actually, you know, a sex slave and not even knowing about it, you know. I would think that, you know, and I'm not a, um, I'm not a parent, so I say this with some reservations because I know that, uh, I know, you know, deeply that, that parents have... An experience uh, with their children that I do not have. Yeah, you know, I don't have an experience of that. However, um, from my perspective, I would think, like, say hypothetically, you catch your your child um, watching porn. Instead of saying, you know, uh, you're you're bad, 
you know, you're in trouble now. Don't do that. Um, you know, the point, yes, should be don't do that. But I think maybe engage in a discussion and say, what do you think that that makes you think about these women or these men, you know, and, and t- have a discussion with them about the implications of it. Um, I think that's one way that, uh, <clears throat> you know, that it can, that it can work because as Gabrielli said, you know, we don't talk about sex. It, there's this really, really strange dichotomy in culture where, um, there's a large portion of it, which is actually kind of uh, prudish and refuses to talk about sex in an open way. And another part of it, which is, you know, softcore or even hardcore porn right in your face. And these mm-hmm. two things are competing for people's attention. And without a real open discussion of what is sexuality, how does it affect you? How does it affect your partner? You know, what does it make you think about other people? Those kind of discussions, I think, are a good first mm-hmm. step to, uh, to helping to yeah. combat our, our children being influenced in this way. Yeah, I think yeah there's research. To... It's important yeah. that you said to not punish people and make them feel like they're evil for having watched porn. I mean, we've all been duped at certain points in our lives, you know, whether it's like nutritional junk food or mental or sexual junk food. I mean, porn is junk and it's not a real representation of sex. Um, but, you know, things happen, you know, you have to grow up at some point, just like at some point you realize that, you know, diet is very important. What you put in your mouth is very important. What you put in your brain is very important as well. Mm-hmm. And you need mm-hmm. to address it in the same way that you decided to, okay, I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to change my mental diet as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It is interesting yeah. that there is some research on Christian communities. You know, there is an article we published in Thought. It says, so why the high rates of porn addiction in the Christian community? And it talked about the shame-inducing, you know, um, environment among Christians in the church by priests. And uh, regardless of that, you know, they have, like, you know, these scribbling porn, you know, rates. <laughs> And it seems that the shame itself, it just makes it worse, you know. So mm-hmm. it supports the idea of, you know, talking about it in the open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to realize that somebody, you know, if somebody listening right now or, or somebody you know or something like that does have kind of an issue with porn, that it, it can be corrected, that there is, you know, steps that can be taken to uh to, to kind of get out of the habit and to um to kind of reset your brain um in amongst the kind of porn recovery community that you see out there they talk about rebooting and rebooting is basically like taking some time to um avoid any kind of artificial sexual stimulation so avoiding porn but it also goes to avoiding like cruising facebook looking for hot chicks or like looking at instagram or anything that could kind of trigger you in that way you kind of av- you avoid that um for a period of time and you try to increase more social connection and i mean yeah they talk about how it would be better to to kind of engage with a real partner that's not always possible um especially if somebody's been kind of locked in their bedroom for years looking at porn um they probably don't have the the you know the social skills that they would naturally have um but that you you know just engaging even in like non sexual or non um uh intimate type of um 
scenarios, just like get out there, connect. Um, those kinds of things are what can kind of bring your brain, you know, get rid of those ingrained pathways that have, have come to um, require this dosage of porn just to kind of uh, subsist normally. And, you know, it takes some time and it, it's painful, but, um, you know, going through that period can reset and can get you back on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a really good um, a really good resource online. Um, I think it's if you just go into Google and type in your brain on porn mm. and there's like a massive website and there's so many resources on there. There's videos, there's, um, there's you know, they, they cite lots of scientific research, the effects it has on your brain, etc. And um, I think there's community forums as well. So, um, so anyone who's having having trouble with that, you know, that there are places to go to and there there's information to access. And I think, you know, that's the first I think the first step in all of this in, in um is actually just acknowledging that it is a problem. Mm-hmm. You know? Um because, you know, it's so normalized now that people just think it's normal. Um mm-hmm. they they accept it. Whereas what when you acknowledge it for what it actually is then, then you can begin to to take take steps towards sort of healing, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd like to speak from the perspective of a parent, because I do have children and they're young women now, and I can say from personal experience that speaking to your kids is the best thing you can do. But you need to be prepared for information that will shock you. And I'm speaking of not only my children, but other children. Because to say that, you know, this doesn't happen or these statistics are overrated or it's not truthful, I can tell you it's shocking. And as hard as it is to address, I think having open, honest communication where it's not shunned, you know, like Gabby talks about the Christian statistics and whatnot these ideas of I'm just going to avoid it and hope for the best is the worst approach. And really to have honest dialogue, especially with your teenage boys, you know, as a mother or as a father representing what a positive role model would be and having that discussion, you know, because peer influence and it's the statistics show this is going to cause so much more of an impact if there's no information at home and the same could be said about drugs and what whatever else but i really again from personal experience it is frightening what these children are exposed to and what becomes perceived as normal Mm -hmm. and all these articles that we read for this show confirm you know kind of in my own experience, what I had thinking in the back of my mind is like it's a very real problem, and it, it is a public health issue, whether people want to address it as that or not. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Great point. Well, I guess uh, um, this would be a good time. We're kind of coming short on our time, so let's uh, let's go to Zoya's pet health segment for today, if you guys don't mind. When we come back, we will uh, we'll wrap up with some closing comments. <laughs> Hello. 
and welcome to the Petal segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, I would like to talk to you again about nutrition, also because I've stumbled upon an excellent article written by Dana Scott, Editor-in-Chief for Dogs Naturally magazine, that explains the differences between cat and dog nutrition, particularly if our goal is to feed them species-appropriate diet. As it happens, even those who would like to give their pets best nutrition possible still make mistakes based on various misconceptions. And so hopefully the following information will help to clarify them. So let's begin. There are many different types of raw feeders, as there are breeds of dogs. You can feed your dog barf, prey model, species appropriate, or any other type of raw diet. There are a lot of ways to play. Uh, these different raw diets are similar but not quite the same. However, the goal of most of these diets is to feed our dog what ma- Mother Nature intended your dog to eat. This is why we often model their diet after their closest uh, wild relatives, the wolves. We figure that this is the best glimpse into the ideal natural diet for our furry family members. At first glance, that's a really good idea. But the problem is, most raw feeders aren't feeding their dogs like wolves at all. They are feeding them like cats. That's hardly species appropriate. Let's take a close look at the difference between dogs and cats and how this dictates what they should be eating. What the mouth can tell us about the diet. Search on the internet for pictures of dogs and cats' teeth. Do you notice pointy teeth that both dogs and cats have? They are called canine teeth, and they are meant to tear and rip flesh. In fact, all of the teeth of the dog and the cat are pointy, so that, in addition to the pronounced canine teeth, gives us a good idea that they are both meant to eat meat. They are both carnivores. So let's compare that to our own omnivores' teeth. We don't have those long, sharp canine teeth. And if you look at the back of our mouth, you'll see the molars are flat. The job of the molars is to crush and grind plant matter. This is why we are classified as omnivores. Our teeth tell us we have a dietary need for plant matter, to a certain degree. Now let's look again at the teeth of our dog. You can see that they have molars at the back of the mouth. They are pointier, but they they have them. They also have a sharp um, interdigitation, but they are clearly there and they look capable of grinding. Compare that to the cat, where the molars are very sharp and elongated and much, much less capable of grinding. So the dog's mouth is somewhere between the human mouth and the cat mouth. You might also have noticed that dogs and humans have a lot more teeth than cats too. Now. There is something we humans have in our mouth that uh, neither dogs or cats have, something called salivary amylase. Amylase is an enzyme that breaks complex uh, carbohydrates down into simple sugars. Neither cats or dogs have salivary amylase. That makes a lot of raw feeders think that dogs can digest plant matter. Apparently this simply isn't true because amylase is also lives in your dog's pancreas. Dogs have four times more pancreatic amylase than cats and the activity of the enzyme rises much more in dogs with the amount of starch content in the diet. 
This means dogs can digest over 99% of processed starches and about 90% of many raw starches. The cat's ability to digest starch is more limited to none. If we move down the digestive tract, you'll see more fundamental differences between the dog and cat. The human digestive tract averages uh, 30 feet or 9 meters in length. Our appendix is actually the remnant of a fermentation system in the large intestine from when we ate a more herbivorous diet. The average length of the dog's digestive tract is 2 feet or 60 centimeters. The average uh, cat's digestive tract is 13 inches or 32 centimeters. Uh, there are more uh, differences between the digestive system of dogs and cats. Humans, as well as other omnivores and herbivores, can convert plant-based uh, alpha-linoleic acid, which is a type of omega-3 fatty acid found in plants, uh, to its useful constitutes, APA and DHA. Dogs can convert approximately 5 to 15%. Cats completely lack the enzymes necessary for this conversion. And finally, dogs can manufacture a taurine, um, an amino acid from animal protein, whereas cats can't. Clearly, cats must eat a predominantly meat-based diet, but dogs are a little fuzzier in the definition. So let's take a look at what dogs eat in the wild to help us understand how the dog's physiology, or rather the wolf's, dictates what he eats uh, when he's in the wild and eating what's available to him. So what about wolves? What do they eat? Most scientists uh, report very little plant matter in wolves' scants, and many raw feeders will take that to mean wolves don't eat plant matter. But the problem is, uh, most wolf's cats are analyzed in the winter months when it's easiest to track them. There isn't much in the way of berries and vegetation in the winter months. When wolf's cats are analyzed from the summer months, we see something different. What we see is a diet that contains 8% grass and berries. Others also found that 74% of wolf's cats collected in the summer contained plant matter. American wolf expert David Mech uh, notes that wolves in Italy, where fruit is more available, have been shown to eat cherries, apples, plums, figs, pears, grapes, and even melon. Wolves in all regions also consume grasses. Many believe this is to prevent parasites, but Mech believes that reason may be for vitamin content. And what about wild cats? Most studies show that cats uh, also eat plant matter, but it's different to that of a wolf. In one study, 25% uh, of wild cats had plant matter in their scats, and another showed a higher percentage. But what's interesting is the veg vegetation isn't grass, fruits and berries. It's grass and twigs. So we know the dietary habits of wolves and wild cats also differ. So what about taxonomy? How we group those animals? Animals and plants are grouped by scientists according to their description and identification. Dogs and cats are both from the order carnivora, meaning that they are carnivores. Carnivore means their diet is mainly made up of meat. But the other carnivore splits into several groups, and you can see the dogs and cats don't share the same taxonomy.
cats and most wild cats share the same taxonomy, Felis. They also share the same traits, ancestry and physiological makeup. All members of the felid family are obligate carnivores. Obligate carnivores must, ma must have meat as the mainstay of their diet or they can't thrive. And this makes sense looking at the diet of cats, which is a lot of meat and other grasses and sticks. Dogs and wolves share the canis classification. Their needs are different than the cat, and we can see from the differences uh, in the ancestry, their anatomy and physiology. Members of the canis family are facultative carnivores. This means uh, they are carnivores with omnivorous tendencies. And this makes sense because dogs are much better scavengers than cats. They can thrive on a wider variety of food, and the wild uh, dog's diet shows a greater willingness to eat berries and fruits. But don't start feeding those carbs just yet. Now, if you're looking to feed your dog kibble or a diet with lots of, or lots of those carbohydrates, you know now he can digest, don't do it. Most kibbles and cooked diets are 30 to 60% starch or carbohydrate. While wolves are eating plant matter, it's not starch, it's not potatoes, it's not rice, and it's not corn. So why are you feeding it to your dog? In nature, the wolf and, uh, or wild dog would eat, on average, 4-7% to starch. And we know that most of that would come from plants and fruits and not grains. Dogs and people have eight hormones for raising blood sugar and only one to lower it, uh, insulin. They are made to live in a world with uh, very little starch and on a rare occasion they are eaten too much, then that one hormone is there to lower it. Pay attention that it also applies to human diet. The other seven hormones are there to rise blood sugar because starch is not normally a large part of the diet. Animal nutrition researcher Richard Patton says this constitute literal hormone abuse. So while dogs clearly have the teeth, digestive tract and physiology to eat plant matter, you need to stick to what they eat in the wild if you really want to feed the species appropriate diet. And that means 4 to 7% plant matter, and this shouldn't include starches your dog wouldn't find in the wild, such as corn, sweet potatoes, or rice. Now, for your raw feeders who aren't feeding any plant matter at all, you are not feeding a species-appropriate diet either. You are essentially feeding cat food to your dog. If you are going to feed your dog a species-appropriate diet, then you need to look at the species. The dog is different from the obligate carnivore cat in many ways. So, what are the differences? More teeth, flatter molars, more pancreatic amylase, four times as much than a cat, more amylase activity, longer digestive tract, nearly twice as long than uh, that of a cat, and can manufacture taurine, and cats can't. So if you don't take this into consideration and feed your dog a small amount of berries and plant matter, then you aren't feeding a species-appropriate diet. Don't make the mistake of assuming the dog isn't an omnivore like us, so he must only eat meat. Your dog wasn't made to eat our diet, but he clearly wasn't made to eat the cat's diet either. So what is the takeaway message? No one can tell you what, uh, what, how to feed your dog. But apparently, if you are feeding a meat-only diet, 
it's not species appropriate diet either. In fact, if you are not feeding hair, feathers, eyes, brains and other icky parts, you are not feeding a species appropriate diet. And your dog will be lacking in many important vitamins and minerals. Your dog needs to eat skin or he will be likely uh, be vitamin D deficient. He needs to eat wool, hair or feathers or he will probably be manganese deficient and so on. So are you feeding all the animal parts to your dog? So this means your dog's raw diet, not including some, but not all commercial raw diets, is deficient. So better to keep that in mind and work on making your dog's diet truly species appropriate. Well, this is it for today. Hopefully this information was useful and have a great weekend. All right, thanks. Uh, some good points there about the species-appropriate diet. Um, I, for one, can say it's been a huge benefit for, for my dog. Uh, she was diagnosed with arthritis a few years ago, and we've been feeding her a raw, a raw meat and bone diet, and uh, she's improved greatly. She's 12 years old and runs around like a puppy. So it really makes a difference. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been actually very huge. I mean, you know, she's getting older, so she's still, I can't run her as hard as I used to, but uh, she's uh, fit and doing well. Um, so back to the uh, to the topic of our show, I guess, just to wrap up, uh, Erica, you made some really great points there at the end, and, and Doug yeah. as well. And I think that um, uh, it's important for us to approach this with a... Uh, a compassionate eye, you know, stern, but compassionate, um, to spread awareness about it, not to shy away from talking about it. Um, you know, I, I've, since I had mentioned that a, a friend of mine, a good friend from my childhood, you know, has worked in the, uh, the kind of rescue recovery slash abolitionist movement. Um, uh, we have had some discussions about this topic in our family and, uh, my family is pretty uh, conservative and it's been hard to talk about, you know, and there's a lot of like, well, I just can't believe that's true. Um, and I think that that is one of a, one of the big problems, you know, that people just can't believe that this goes on um, uh, specifically in regards to trafficking. Um, but, you know, also talking about uh, pornography and the pervasiveness of it. Um, let's, you know, let's talk about it. Like everybody have, have that conversation because, as long as it stays in the shadows and is not discussed openly, it will continue to gain power, continue to uh, influence, especially our young people, um, continue to destroy uh, intimacy. And, you know, it, even now or in just a few years, what are we going to have? Like, you know, 5% of relationships are actually healthy. Um, that's For a frightening people who idea. who can only relate to robots. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, and also by all means, we always advocate, uh, doing your own research, uh, look up, um, not just, uh, numbers and statistics, but stories, you know, and, and talk to people. And if you are, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> if you are interested in, uh, uh, in getting involved, 
Uh, in some way, there are a number of organizations throughout the country where you can uh, volunteer your your time uh, or even just donate to help uh, with people who have been uh, victims of trafficking, um, helping with uh, homeless youth. Uh, that's a huge problem and is also intimately tied with this whole thing, um, especially uh, LGBT kids who are kicked out of their homes and put on the street, uh, you know, forced by means of necessity, not necessarily by coercion, but they have no other alternative than to get into this kind of work. Um, and that is also tied with pornography. So when you, you know, when you, when you create the demand for, for porn, um, the supply will continue and it's just the way it's going to keep going unless people, uh, talk about it and, and work, uh, with people who are involved in that. Mm. Mm-hmm. In That's addition to homeless children, Jonathan, also foster children are mm-hmm. at an epidemic risk of abuse as well, physical and sexual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just stop watching porn. I think that's yeah. <laughs> that's one yeah. of the the main things that you could do to actually help in this kind of situation is right. uh, you know because by just by even if you're watching you know a, a lot of people are like well I'm not watching that kind of stuff but you're still you're still supporting the overall industry and the demand you know you're supporting the people who are offering those sorts of things and creating creating a demand so you know don't kid yourself you know you you're taking part in a, an extremely dark part of our reality just by uh, you know watching any any of that kind of stuff or visiting those sites and don't keep it because you watch free porn either. All of it contributes mm, right. to it. Just don't feed the beast. Remember, yes, it's the psychopathic yeah. worldview. Remember. Exactly. Yeah. You're paying an so energy if, directed towards it, even if you're not paying yeah. cash. Exactly. And for yeah. all those listeners who have children, have the conversation. You know, mm-hmm. don't make it taboo. You know, encourage your children to open up to you because the more they feel they can free, freely express themselves and their questions, then the more support they're going to get. And, you know, yeah. as I said earlier, and it's the hardest thing to do to talk to them about it, but get some feedback, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's they how have these a, kind a better- of voice. Yeah. And that's how these kinds of things happen because... They shy away from from wanting to share or ask questions, you know? If it's in the open, they have a better chance of recovering and leading a normal life and having a real intimate relationship. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gabby, didn't you have a little bit of positive news for the end of the show (laughs) to share? Was there one beneficial story out of all of this information that we read this week? (laughs) Yes, it was a very sweet boy who was very popular doing sports. Then, you know, the mother one day, all of a sudden, basically, notices uh, notices uh, how he deteriorates, you know. He basically behaves like he w- he went through some severe trauma or something. It was basically deteriorating, disintegrating very fastly. And then one day, the mother found out that it was basically he got addicted to porn on the internet and um, clever mother yes she spoke about him openly and they sought help from uh, a psychologist he was not judged he was not shamed he was accepted you know this happened 
and uh, it was discussed discussed in the open. And after some therapy, he did recover. He went back to be his normal self, and uh, he stopped watching porn. <laughs> and how old was he? He understood. Mm. He was very young. He was like 12 years 12. old. If I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was 12. And if anybody wants to read that article, it's called How Internet Porn Turned My Beautiful Boy Into a Hollow, Self-Hating Shell. Originally published on Mail Online, but we've got it on SOT. Uh, and it was on April 19th of 2012. Excellent. All right. Well, and with that, I guess let's, uh, let's wrap up. We'd like to thank... Um, all of our listeners for tuning in today. Really appreciate you sticking with us, uh, especially through this difficult topic. Um, we hope that you were able to take something away from it. Um, and thanks to our chat participants uh, for taking place or taking taking part in the chat. We had a pretty fairly lively chat today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, be sure to tune into the uh, the SOT Radio show on Sunday at noon. Uh, I believe the. Uh, have we settled on a title for that yet? Is the truth perspective <laughs> was last Sunday? Um, anyway, it is it is the the Sod Radio podcast for lack of a better title. Uh, <laughs> so Sunday at noon Eastern time, uh, and depending on where you are in the world, if you go to radio.sod.net on Sunday, you will be able to see the uh, the time in, in your local time zone for that show. So be sure to check that out. Uh, and we will be back uh, next Friday with another topic. Thanks again, everybody, and uh, have a great weekend. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.